0: The mountains saw you and writhed, the raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray. Father,
1: uh, we come to you humbly for we know that you are the eternal one and you have created all things for your glory. Uh, Lord, all your purposes come to fruition and uh, we know through your Scripture and all that is created that uh, you are uh, sovereign over all things, and so, Lord, we are so gracious that uh, you have given us Scripture to know you, and you have uh, set aside um, set aside people to to know Scripture, to study it, and to Uh, give it to us in a way that we can understand and a way that we can uh, discuss it to further know your commands. Uh, Lord, I I thank you that uh, you are not just a faraway God who created the world and uh, left us in it to fend for ourselves, but that you are active and living and omnipresent and Lord, that you care about us as individuals. And so, Lord, I do pray for us to be illuminated so that we might uh, understand your word and praise you for it. Amen.
2: Amen. Thank you, Sam, for praying. Thank you, Elijah, for uh, reading through that for us. Guys, it's good to see you. See you in form, I know. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, we have church, and I know we had just this Sunday. We had a really, uh, really fun time together that was organized by uh, Francis and Jennifer. And so uh, we have seen you guys, but we haven't been uh, directly, I guess, in the word in a while. And I get that um, you guys have also started school again, and there's lots of different things going on. And so because of that, I wanted to do, before we started, a very quick a summary of just some of the things that we've studied so far in the minor prophets just to uh, to hit your guys's memory banks a little bit so you'll look on the powerpoint on the next slide uh, is going to show us the timeline of everything that we've covered in the minor prophets so far and in the minor prophets so far we've actually covered in eight sermons seven of the minor prophets we've covered seven of them so far And in those ones, we've learned quite a lot of differences as well as similarities from all of those books. And I want to make note of some of those things to show you the ways in which scripture is cohesive in the sense that scripture teaches the same thing constantly through, but also the ways that God highlights different things in different books in the Bible. Every single book in the Bible was there for a reason um, but every single book of the Bible agrees with God's consistency. Um, so if I started with some of the difference, I hope that you guys have noticed already some of the differences we've covered here so far. For example, something like judgment that's talked about in Obadiah compared with judgment talking about in Joel is a little bit different, um, namely because of when that judgment is taking place either in the present, in Obadiah's case or in the future, in Joel's case. Now at the same time, uh, judgment even in Nahum is different from both of those concerning the level of wrath coming and even the possibility of the wrath going against those people, if it's even possible for them to escape wrath. Um, Another example of this might be God's love. The way that Hosea talks about God's love, for example, reveals how God constantly and fatherly, in a fatherly sense, loves his people. But God's love as talked about in Jonah is a bit different from Hosea in the sense that God's love is the same, but for different people. In Jonah's case, it's his compassionate love for Gentile sinners, people who aren't even his people. And so different books in the Bible reveal different things about what God is like. But at the same time, there are some things, some themes that are the same throughout all of these things. Now, all books that we've covered so far talk about wrath and judgment. Books like Hosea and Micah, even though they highlight these really beautiful passages about God's love, they also have some of the scariest language concerning God's judgment, just like Joel and Nahum and Obadiah. But at the same time, if we turn that on the other way, All of the minor prophets have also talked about God's grace in one sense or another. For example, Joel, which is a very frightening vision of future judgment, still includes and highlights one of the greatest verses about repentance and coming to Christ and being forgiven by God in the whole Bible. And so God's grace in all of the minor prophets is also something that's very constant And now one of those similarities for us that we're going to be learning today in Habakkuk is a very, very good word. And the word in Habakkuk is actually a similarity that we've actually covered uh, through the minor prophets, but we haven't necessarily spent particular time on. And that is the idea of trusting God. The main theme in Habakkuk is trusting God. Specifically, God is going to reveal how we can trust him, when things are difficult. That's going to be the strand that ends up following through the book of Habakkuk. So as we begin with that similarity, let me also kind of introduce the book of Habakkuk a little bit by talking about a difference, talking about one of the uniqueness and unique natures of the book of Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk is really, really cool because its uniqueness is found in that this isn't necessarily a prophecy. Habakkuk isn't a sermon. It's not a historical story or a historical reenactment. Habakkuk is different and unique from every book in the whole Bible in that the entirety of these three chapters is a conversation. It's a conversation between God and his prophet. Now, Habakkuk was a prophet. He was a prophet uniquely called by God to have a relationship with him and speak God's word to the people. And he records this as an oracle. Now, if you remember the book of Nahum, the oracle that was mentioned in the book of Nahum, what the word oracle means isn't just a vision. It's not just a conversation. It's a burden. And this is going to be a book about a burden, a weight, something frustrating that the prophet is going to bring towards God, and he records his conversation for us. And the first thing that Habakkuk asks, if you're in the Bible right now, you can go to the very first page of Habakkuk, and the first four verses of Habakkuk explain Habakkuk's question to God. And the question that he has could be summed up in those four verses in verse 3. And verse three says this, it says, Why do you make me look at iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. In the book of Habakkuk, the prophet looks at the people Israel that God called him to. And his question is why God is allowing them to be so sinful. You guys will remember as we've gone through the minor prophets that the people of Israel, the Israelites were incredibly sinful, not just that they were generically sinners and they just happened to do some things wrong, but did their best. All of their efforts were put into sin and wickedness. In Habakkuk's case, he highlights the fact that they're unjust, something that the book of Micah and Amos have talked about. And so Habakkuk asked God, why haven't you done anything about this? And the amazing thing is that God actually right away answers his question. In verses 5 to 11 of chapter 1, God responds to tell Habakkuk what he's going to do with the Israelites. And that is summed up very well in verses 5 and verse 6. Verse 5 and verse 6 say this, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. Now, if any of you are comfortable enough to unmute yourselves, can somebody try and answer this question for me? What has been Israel's main enemy through the minor prophets so far? What nation has been their enemy? Does anyone want to say
0: Assyrians?
2: Yes, very good. I'm sorry, I I can only see four of you at a time right now, so I'm not exactly sure who said it, but whoever said it, you're exactly right. It's been the Assyrians. Now, you guys will remember that we've dealt with Jonah and Nahum, in which the city of Nineveh was like this hub for the Assyrians. And you remember that even though they were forgiven in the book of Jonah, they went back to their sin 100 years later in the book of Nahum, and they were punished by God for their sin. Or at least at that time, he had promised that his punishment would come to them. And at this point in history, that punishment has come. And it's come in the form of a brand new dominant nation in the world. Now, if you guys ever check your phone or the internet for highlights about maybe a celebrity that's coming out in a new movie, or maybe a headline dealing with a sports figure, and the headline will sometimes read, this is the newest person to watch out for. Or this is the new star of this movie or this team that you need to be watching this year. And in the book of Habakkuk, if you were in the nation of Judah during this time, the southern kingdom of the Israelites, if there was a newspaper in that day, the headline would have read, the nation to watch out for is Babylon. They're the newest kid in town, the most dominant group on the face of the earth at this point. And what's happening is God is not only allowing them to become powerful over the Assyrians, but because Judah has sinned so terribly before God, he's going to allow them to also take Judah into exile. The northern kingdom, you'll remember, has already been taken away by Assyria, and now they're already in the hands of the Babylonians because they inherited them from Assyria. But now all of the Israelites who were left in Judah are going to be taken away as well. And maybe you don't have this question, but there is a question to be asked here. And fortunately for us, Habakkuk answers that question. There is a massive question with how God is dealing out his punishment. And Habakkuk asks the question. In verse 13, Habakkuk asks this question to God. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you so idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? This is the question that Habakkuk is asking here. If he was speaking to God in our vernacular, in our language, he'd say something like this, whoa, 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 whoa. God, let me get this straight for a second. You are a holy God and you hate sin. So you're going to punish our people for sinning. Okay, I get that. But God, if you hate sin so much, why would you allow us to be punished by a nation that's three, four, five times worse than us? Why would you allow your punishment to come through a foreign nation that's done way worse things than us, and especially against us who are your people? How could this happen? And Habakkuk is so upset about this that he ends his second response in chapter two, verse one, by telling God, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set up a tent. I'm going to sleep here. I'm going to wait here until you come back and answer my question, because I can't make sense of this. And I will not be able to tell the people of God this. I simply don't understand. And amazingly, even though we might think that this is very irreverent or very rude God comes back again and God answers his question again. In chapter 2 verses 2 to verse 20, so almost all of chapter 2 is God responding with five woes. Not woe like I already mentioned in Habakkuk's fake prayer W H O A, but W O E, a woe. And a woe is said before a judgment. The best way I can explain a woe to you is basically equivalent to saying, Babylon, these are the reasons why it's going to suck to be you. That is what a woe entails. That is what it explains. Basically, what he says is, Babylon, you have now guaranteed my wrath upon you. Even though I am using you to execute my punishment against Israel, you're not doing it for the same reasons. You are doing it because you are sinful and greedy and corrupt and everything you do, you are still responsible for because of the sin in your heart. And I will not forget it. And I will punish you for every single terrible thing that you do. He sums it up in chapter two, verse 16, when he says to them, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. In that case, uncircumcision is referring to a proof that Babylon is not God's people, and therefore they're not under God's protection. And so God further says in verse 16, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. Basically, what God is saying is he's going to allow what happened to Assyria being taken over, like in the book of Nahum, is going to also happen to Babylon after They take all the remaining free Israelites back into exile. And to be honest with you, if Habakkuk ended there, it would still be a good word. It'd be a word very similar to the book of Nahum in which God is going to execute his judgment upon his own people. But he's also going to punish those people who are not under God's protection. But the cool thing is Habakkuk does not end there. Similar to the book of Jonah, like we studied in Jonah chapter four, we have one more chapter in which God will re-explain his heart through the prophet's heart by giving Habakkuk a chance to explain how he's thinking through the situation and he's thinking about it in a good way. And God puts that in our Bible to explain how we can deal with bad situations in a righteous way. Just think how Habakkuk must be thinking right now and the temptation he could fall under. Can you remember back to a time, maybe even now when you're in class, whether through Zoom or in person, or when you're on a sports team or in a lecture, and on this group of people that you're with, a bunch of them do something really dumb and they get into trouble. And the teacher responds, fine, everyone in the class gets detention. And you are in the middle of that, and you go up and say, whoa, 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 I didn't do anything, they did something, I'm fine, I didn't do anything, I I don't need to be punished for this, just punish those people, you don't need to punish all of us. But you get punished anyway. Something akin to that is happening to Habakkuk right now. We have to wonder if one of the things that Habakkuk was struggling with was God, I didn't do anything. I'm being taken away into a foreign nation in which the fault is upon them, not upon me, but I'm going to be punished along with them. Moreover, I don't even explain how it is. I don't even understand how it is that I can be punished with my people who are your children by a nation worse than us. So he's not only calling in his situation, but the situation of all of God's people and his ability to doubt God is very high. Remember that all of the prophets and the minor prophets would have had to deal with something similar to this because all of the prophets are either predicting exile or happening after exile. Some of the last three minor prophets will do will take place while Israel is in captivity. All of them are dealing with this kind of problem which is dealing with maybe God is unjust to us or maybe God just doesn't care for us. We dealt with something similar to this. in last Sunday, if you were in church when we went through Psalm chapter 73 concerning the prosperity of the wicked evil might prosper for a small time. And that's really hard for us to do. And it makes us want to be in the position that they are in and start to ask God, what we should do when we see these things, how should we think about God? Fortunately for us, God has actually prefaced this chapter in chapter three by saying this really amazing verse in chapter two, that will be the first step in helping us understand how we can respond when we are in bad situations to God. And that verse is chapter two, verse four. In chapter two, verse four in Habakkuk says this, behold, His, which is the wicked's, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this verse becomes one of the most quoted verses in the entire New Testament. And for good reason, God doesn't say to his people that you're righteous when you act perfectly. God doesn't say to his people, you're righteous when you do what I say. God doesn't even say you're righteous when you are just quiet and still and just accept everything I say. God says something much greater. God says you are righteous when you believe me. When you trust me and when you have faith that even when you don't understand things, I do. And your job is to believe what I say and I will take care of everything else that you have to deal with. And so the point that we can take away from the entire book of Habakkuk is learning to trust God, even in difficult circumstances, to continue to be righteous, even when it's hard to do. And moreover, the proposition, the main point of our section in chapter three, is that Habakkuk will teach us three attitudes of a trusting believer, a believer that trusts God, so that we would continue in faith when things go bad. Chapter three is going to teach us three attitudes of a trusting believer so that we can continue in faith when things go bad. Now, I hope immediately before we get into these three attitudes quickly that you understand how relevant this should be for us living in a COVID-19 world, because we are going to deal with a season that is very frustrating. Whether you're concerned with government things or just the situation of still being in lockdown, Or maybe you're just frustrated that all of that stuff is happening while you are trying to plan for your future. And things just don't seem to be organized and coming about the way you expected. And listen, that makes sense. That's part of what it's like to live in a fallen world, to live in a world that we don't understand everything God is doing. But texts like this are going to help us understand things like that. Now, notice that as we go through this, we're dealing with three attitudes of trusting God and not just trusting God in general. And there's a reason for that too. The reason is because the words trusting God seem to be very generic nowadays. I could ask you, or maybe you could ask someone you know if you trust God and they'll say, oh yeah, God is in control and he's king and yeah, I trust him. But what if you were to ask the question, what does trusting God look like? How can you look at person A and person B and say, that person trusts God without a doubt? What kind of behavior does it have? What kind of evidences does it produce? The question really is that, have you come here today for something past just you've been told to come to this meeting? Have you come to this meeting today for something about trying to understand a deeper and greater knowledge of not only who God is, but also how God can grant you peace, safety, comfort, and knowledge in this life to understand the purpose of everything going on. And none of those things happen if you don't trust God if you don't have a deep and abiding love for who God is, and if you don't have real reasons to trust God, then life is just going to not only not make sense, but it's also going to provide no joy and no peace for you. And that's why we're studying that. So keep those things in mind while we look through three attitudes by which we can begin to trust God. And the first one in verses one and two of chapter three is that trusting God is deliberate trusting God is deliberate. Now, if you don't know what the word deliberate is, it's okay. The word deliberate means to be thoughtful and careful. The word deliberate means to make something very important or do something as if it's important. It means you don't just believe something, but you also do it as an action. Basically, being deliberate is working out a purpose that you believe your life should have being deliberate, doing something deliberately. That's what it means. The reason that it's important to understand that trusting God is deliberate is because, and, you know, try and track with me on this. You can be present, but not really present. You can be there, but not really there. You can be in class at school and you can technically physically be in the class, but mentally you're daydreaming. You've checked out. You can be talking with a bunch of people, you can be talking to a parent, but as soon as it gets to a topic that you're not interested in, you aren't there anymore and you're thinking about something else. Maybe you have a job in which you work and you can say you physically did your shift, but three hours later, you can forget everything you've done because you weren't really paying attention. You weren't engaged. And that kind of behavior can be something that we do all of the time in our Christian faith. We can say that we have faith, but we don't really, in part of my language here, use faith. We don't do anything in faith. If that's the case, if we don't actually use the faith that we say we believe, our gut response when bad situations will happen are going to be wrong before God, And they are not going to grant you any comfort in this life. Every bad situation will do nothing for you. It will just work against you. One of the ways you could phrase it is this, that if you had a car, faith would be the fuel by which you could move that car. But you still have to make sure that you don't just sit in the driveway. At some point, you need to exercise the uses that that car actually gives you. You have to start driving and put your feet on the pedal. That's what being deliberate in trusting God means, using faith that God has actually given for you in the things you do. And the way Habakkuk deliberately trusts God is that he immediately gets on his knees and starts praying in verse 1. We have a record of this prayer because God wants us to know that we should pray like this when we know bad times are coming or if bad times have come. And Habakkuk's prayer says in the first part of verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear two times in this book, Habakkuk asks God a question. And two times in this book, God answered that question. That is not lost on Habakkuk. He prays to God and he says, God, God have answered my question. I wanted you to answer my question, but I listened to you and I fear you. And I am thankful to tell you that you have answered my prayer he's responsive. He tells God that he wants to be responsive, but that's not the only thing that he does. The second part of verse two says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known, and in wrath, remember mercy. What is Habakkuk praying here? Do you know that when things are wrong in the world or wrong in your life, It's okay to pray that God would change things. You know, we often think that it's wrong to pray like that for maybe one of two reasons. One reason could be you think that it's useless. You could think that God isn't really gonna change my life because God doesn't want to answer my prayer. And so you don't pray. The other reason might be more honorable potentially. You might think that if you pray that God would change things, that you're disagreeing with God. You might think that that kind of prayer means that you don't agree with the plan that God is working out in your life. And in Habakkuk's case, both of those things are wrong. The reality is that God asked that God would make known exactly what he wants to do. He says that he would bring it to life. He'd revive it, that he would make it known. He's saying, God, everything you say to do, do it. Let the chips fall where you ordain they would fall. But he also asked God, please, God, according to who you have told us you are, please remember to be merciful. Be merciful to your people in Judah. We do not deserve it, but we're going to ask for it. James chapter 5 verse 16 that we've been studying so far on Sundays. In James chapter 5 verse 16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And likewise, First John 5.14 says, This is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Sometimes bad things happen because they're our fault, and we suffer the consequences of our own actions. And sometimes things just go bad for us because we live in a fallen world. But in both cases, his people have the chance to approach him and ask God to intervene, to interject, to come and affect the things about us. And God promises in all places of the Bible that he hears us and that prayer is often the means by which he changes things. He ordains that we would pray and then he honors that prayer to prove that we can trust him. And therefore, we need to seriously be deliberate in faith to approach God in prayer, not only just for communication, but for intervention, for your friends, for your community, for your church, and for our world. We need to pray that God would be God and that we would be on board with his plan, but that he would work out a plan that we pray would be for his glory. And that second idea is what the very next thing is talking about. The second way that we can trust God, according to Habakkuk, is to trust God in submissiveness. Trusting God is submissive. Submissive basically is the idea of if God were to give us an order, that we would be on our knees and bow down before him in agreement. It's reverent agreement. And that is kind of explained in verses 3 to 16. Now, if you read Habakkuk this week, or I pray if you would read it after we meet today, because it's one of my favorite books in the entire Bible, you will reach chapter 3, verse 3 to verse 15. And your question, if it's like me, the first time I read this will be, oh my gosh, what did I just read? The reason that those parts of this text are confusing is because they are a theophany, a theophany what on earth is a theophany? Well, listen, a theophany is a visible manifestation to humankind of God. It's God visibly revealing himself or explaining something about himself to mankind. Now, you can see on the PowerPoint that there's at least three moments that I found famous paintings of, of theophanies in the Bible. The first is Moses at the burning bush. The second is actually Samson's parents in Judges 13. If you've never read that story, it's a very cool story. And the last one is actually an artist's rendering of the vision that Ezekiel sees at the very beginning of Ezekiel. And if you read any of those things, especially Ezekiel's theophany, it is very hard to try and understand what its point is. Now, commentators and pastors and all sorts of spiritual people disagree on what exactly is happening in chapter 3, verses 3 to 15. Some people say that it's dealing with a moment that Habakkuk saw after he prayed. Some people think that it happened when he prayed. Some people think that he's actually just describing things that have already happened in biblical history, mainly things that happened in the book of Exodus. And some people think that it's actually something that's going to happen in the future. And to be honest, it is very hard to say, even for very gifted Bible scholars. But one thing is very important to take away, which is that this is important for us. If you read this, what should really strike you is how awesome, beautiful, lovely, and glorious is God. Even if you don't understand what is happening or when it's happening, you need to know that this is going to give you so much description of who God is and how glorious he is. Now, you'll see on the PowerPoint, all of the verses that are there in chapter three, verses three to 15, and there's a lot of them on the PowerPoint there, and we can't cover all of them, but let me highlight at least two quick things for you. One is that this theophany, this visible manifestation of God to humankind, should point you to the fact that this is God's world. We are in God's world. You can see all of the highlighted verses there deal with one of three things that help you explain how we are in God's world. And those three words are God is powerful, present, and purposeful. God is powerful, present, and purposeful. God is powerful because he created the whole universe and he exercises his control over everything with unmatched power, which nobody can get even close to. But God is also present. He's not a God far off, but he's a God close, and he's involved with his creatures that he created. He is interactive with them. In the same way that Habakkuk has prayed to God, God has given something back to Habakkuk, and He has given something to us. He cares about his creation, and he's interactive in his world. He's present. But he's not only powerful and present, he's also purposeful. God does things, and he does them for a reason, and that reason is always good. And we are fortunate that he's revealed himself in a way, and his character in a way, that we can know without a doubt that all of his purposes are good. So what's the point of all of that in this vision for our discussion? Well, let me explain it this way. Have you ever met someone, and you started talking to them, And they responded by saying this, hey, do you even know who you're talking to? Maybe you've seen it with a popular high school kid in your life or on TV where they said, do you even know who you're talking to? And if you've ever experienced that, you know what they mean. What they're saying is, oh, if you knew how how important I am, if you knew how many people I know, then you would talk differently to me. You'd be kinder you'd use a different tone with me the point of a vision like this is so that you would know who you're talking to that is the point of a vision like this that we would know who we're talking to this is an immensely intimidating demonstration of the glory of god a god who is mighty and powerful and ordains everything And in the middle of this prayer, God tries to make a point that I am way too much for you to understand perfectly, and I am way more intimidating than you give me credit for. One of these verses that's incredibly cool to see is verse four, which talks about how God is bright, but also that he veiled his power. How can God be both visible and covering his visibility that doesn't It doesn't make sense. And the whole point is that God is so bright, it's like staring at the sun. It's beautiful, but it's so bright and large and intimidating that it blinds us and we can't look at him. That is how glorious God is. But it's actually more than just that for us. The second reason this vision is given to us is because God is making a point that he is active in this world. You can see right now on the PowerPoint that Ashley's showing before you, all of those small sections in red, all of those are action words. They're verbs that God is doing something now. Why is he saying that? Well, Habakkuk chapter two, verses two and three, God explained why he's doing these things. He tells Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God is doing something in Habakkuk's time because God is always doing something in every time. And we need to know which person is doing that. Because when we know who is doing something, we will then be okay with him doing something. Listen to Habakkuk's response to this in chapter 3, verse 16. This is what Habakkuk says when he sees this vision. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. He is terrified out of his mind. But then he says this, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. What is Habakkuk's point here? Our job is to agree with God's plan, whatever his plan is, in submission. Even if that plan seems to us like it does bad to us. If we are wrapped up in a world that is chaotic, it is not because God is not in control. God has a better plan that we may not understand. But when you see a vision of God like this, and you understand his glory and power, and the more you accept that, the more you will trust God that what he does is right. If this kind of God isn't your God, if you read this vision and you just think, that's not my God then you will never, ever be able to trust God and you will never, ever have peace in this world. But God gave you this vision so that you would trust him. He didn't say this to make you terrified into doing every single thing he says because we are sinners and we will misstep all the time. But what God is trying to point out to us is that he is worthy of being believed. And as we see that work out in beautiful displays of his power, He is actually trying to make us content to believe him. If you believe in the God of Habakkuk 3, chapter 3, verses 3 to 15, submitting to God's plan will be very easy. And that is a good thing. God is awe-inspiring, he is glorious. And when you witness it, Trusting God in submission will be very, very easy. And it will be easier in, when you read more and more glorious pictures of Him in the Bible. And so, so far, because of the, that, we've now seen two ways that we trust God. First is we trust Him deliberately, we trust Him by actively doing something. In Habakkuk's case, we actively trust Him by praying, praying for thankfulness, praying in thankfulness, rather, and then praying for Him to intervene. But at the same time, we trust God in submission, which means in whatever way he chooses to intervene, we accept that and are okay with it because we know how glorious God is and that his plans are always for justice as well as mercy, mercy upon us. And that's the third way that we can trust God. The third way we can trust God, the last three verses of Habakkuk, not only chapter three, but the entire book is that trusting God is joyful. Trusting God is joyful. Verses 17 and 18 say this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God God. Of my salvation. Habakkuk describes in these verses in verse 17, he's really just describing that if these things happened, my whole society would be destroyed. They're agrarian, which means they rely on the land. If the produce of the olive fails, they're doomed. If the fields yield no food, they're doomed. If their flocks are cut off from the fold, if, if their sheep wander too far away and they die, we're doomed but even if all of those things happen, I won't only still trust God. I will be joyful and I will praise my God. What is Habakkuk's point in explaining this to us? Habakkuk's point is that it is very easy to have an attitude of honoring God. And it's sometimes really easy to have an attitude of believing God. I can believe that God is existent, that he's Trustworthy, I can believe he created things because the world is complicated, and I can believe that. But when things go bad, it can be very hard to be excited about God. Maybe I could say it this way Have you ever been salty about being a Christian? Let's just be honest. Have you ever been bitter about being a Christian? Maybe you could put it this way Have you ever been excited about being a Christian? Or is it just something that weighs you down? Is it something that your parents are that's not cool? Is it something that some of your friends are, but your cool friends are something else? Is it something that you feel you have to be, but you don't really want to be? Habakkuk would tell you, you're really missing out if that's the case. Because when bad things happen and you know God exists, it is the greatest thing in the world. You know, We like to fellowship here and we like to play games here. I wish we didn't have to do things on Zoom so we could play really fun and elaborate games in person. And the reason we do that is because we care about your happiness. That is the truth. We do care about your happiness. However, your greatest happiness is not gonna be found in anything outside of being a believer in Jesus Christ. And the reason is because you can rejoice with your entire heart if you know that the ultimate priority in your life, which is being right before a holy God, is completely dealt with. That God is the God of your salvation. That Jesus Christ wasn't just theophic, (laughs) that Jesus Christ wasn't just sent in a theophany, That Jesus Christ wasn't just sent in some dream that you have to believe. He came in a real time in history. That Jesus Christ, who is fully God, who became fully man, did everything that we needed to do to be right before a holy God. And because of that, we don't only have celerity. We don't only have stability. We don't only have joy because we know that when we die, we'll go to heaven. We also have joy now. No matter what happens, God still cares about your future and he will sustain you and preserve you through trouble. And if he doesn't, you will only go on to greater glory. In the theophany that we read, Habakkuk actually saw that of God as well. If you look back at verse 13, he says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed God coming for salvation is exactly what Jesus Christ said he came to do. In Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, Jesus Christ said that he came not for those who need a physician. He did not come for those who are well, but he came for those who are sick. He came for those who need a physician. He says, I have not come to call the righteous. I have come to call sinners to repentance. God came to save sinners. And he came so that when bad things happen, the promise of salvation would be given to us so we can have hope no matter what happens. That is trusting God with joy. So he ends that in verse 19 by saying, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and he makes me tread on my high places. Let me end this time by giving you one final illustration. The same illustration that Habakkuk is trying to explain in this text. Walking through this world is like how I used to walk to school when I lived in Nova Scotia. If you don't know Nova Scotia on the east coast of Canada, it snows all the time. And walking through this life is like walking through eight feet of snow. The farther you go, it gets harder and more tiring and you get colder and colder and colder as you walk. But if you have snowshoes, you can walk on top of it over the snow, and you won't get cold. Because of your body temperature, you'll get warmer and warmer, and you will be able to deal no matter how high the snow gets. So why am I saying that the gospel is like shoes? Well, the reason is because the New Testament explains the gospel in that sense. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15 Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. One part of the armor of God is described this way as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The reason that the gospel is explained as shoes is because it is used by which you can get through any single circumstance, that you would have peace no matter how high the problems of this world become over you, they will never rise above you and they will never take away your oxygen. You will always be able to get past them because God will allow you to walk above them instead of sinking into despair. So if you read the book of Habakkuk, remember the three things that he is trying to explain to you about how you can trust God. You can trust God deliberately. You can trust God in your actions by which you will always reap a greater comfort and joy in God's plan. You also need to remember desperately to trust God with submission, even if things don't go your way when you prayed that God would make him come another way. The reason is because his plans are better than ours, and he has plans for your joy and comfort, which is the third thing. Trusting God is a good thing, which is why he tells it to do it sometime or so often. The reason you can trust God Is because you can see how glorious and mighty and wonderful he is and how good his plans are for your life. That was good enough for Habakkuk to get through a period when everyone he knew went into exile. And it is great enough for you to deal with no matter what happens for you in our current period. And that is what the book of Habakkuk is about. So let's pray. God, it is very, very difficult, not only to navigate this world, but to navigate your word, to navigate how on earth we are supposed to behave. It is so much harder when we don't know what you are going to do. We don't know what's around the corner. Our perspective is so limited. But Lord, you protect us and you save us and you promise that your justice will go out against everyone who is against you but your mercy will also come to people like us who used to be in rebellion against you, but have now been saved by your care. God, you have always been a good God to us and you always will be a good God to us because you have provided us enlightenment of your Holy Spirit and therefore clarity concerning how you have saved us in your gospel. Lord, I pray for anyone here who uh, does not know you, who is not a believer, even those who might think that they are believers, Lord, I pray, that they would understand in the book of Habakkuk that you grant enlightenment, that you are real and have revealed yourself in all places in history. And you have revealed to so many of our hearts that you are good and that you sent your son Christ to live a perfect life for us and die for the punishment of our sins that we deserve. And you did all of that simply because you love us, not because we deserve it, but because you are gracious Lord please help us as we just spend some time discussing these things and trying to apply them to our world now. And please help us to understand just how good it is to know you and how we can trust you more. Thank you for this time, Lord, and we pray all of this in your matchless name. Amen. Thank you guys for listening. I know it is not easy to go through these kinds of things, but I appreciate you guys' attention. Uh, for coming and for uh, hopefully having good discussion in this following time. Uh, Thank you as well to Ashley for handling the PowerPoint. It is not easy to track with my kind of stuff. So thank you very, very much. Um, If you saw good, if there were helpful things in the PowerPoint, that's because Ashley redesigned them for me. If there were things in the PowerPoint that were messy, that's because I had made them. So don't blame any of her design skills on any of the PowerPoint. That was confusing. That was all me. So Uh, Ashley, you can stop there